If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Thursday, January the 11th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio here on the campus of Stanford University, Dr. Abbas Malani. He's a Hoover Research Fellow, the Hamid and Christina Mogadam Director of Iranian Studies at Stanford University, and a professor by courtesy in the Division of Stanford Global Studies. He's written numerous books on Iran, Persia, in his earlier days as a native of that land. It is an honor to have you in today, sir. It's my pleasure and honor to be with you. There is a lot to cover in a very short period of time. Obviously, we want to talk about the uprisings in Iran. We want to talk about the government's reaction, the government's future. Donald Trump is having a meeting today at the White House where he's going to talk about sanctions, which ties into the future of the nuclear deal. But I think for the purpose of our audience, let's talk a bit about you and what brought you to America. You grew up in Iran, and in the 1970s, you found yourself on the wrong side of the then regime of the Shah. Tell us a bit about what happened. Well, first of all, I came to America first in 1964. I went to school, mm-hmm. and uh, I went back to Iran in 75 after having gotten my PhD from here. And I began teaching at the Tehran University and the National University, the two uh, eminent universities in Iran at the time. But I was also an opponent of the Shah uh, in that capacity. I ended up in prison, spent about a year, almost exactly a year in prison. And uh, the fact that six months of it was uh, in the same cell block with people who would shortly become the future leaders of Iran. Almost every cleric of renown was at that time in that cell block, from Rafsanjani to Montazari to Talagani. These are names well known in Iran, maybe not to the audiences here. So that gave me a kind of interesting uh, window into the future. This would be the mid-1970s. This would be 1976. And um, because of uh, Jimmy Carter's human rights policies, almost all mm-hmm. political prisoners were pardoned by the Shah. I was pardoned by the Shah. Uh, I went back to the university after the fall of the Shah uh, and taught in Tehran, Tehran University Faculty of Law till 87. Mm-hmm. But th- these guys then began to not allow me to teach. Uh, and I decided that, uh, as Yates would say, this is no country for an old man. I, I left. I came to the United States. I first began teaching at a small liberal arts college, not from from here, Notre Dame, Benamir University. I taught there. I was the chair of the political science department. And uh, I've now been at Stanford for 15 years. Um, at Hoover, uh, with Larry Diamond and Mike McFall, we have their own democracy project. Mm-hmm. And for the last 12 years, I've been the f- sort of the founding director of the Iranian Studies Program at Stanford. The uprising in Iran begins on December the 28th in cities across the country. And I find what's interesting about this is the various theories going around as to what triggered the uprisings. I have seen theories posited that this 
was inevitable. The Iranian economy uh, is lagging. I have seen uh, theories that this is a product of unemployment, that unemployment in Iran is running at about 10 percent. It's been at about 10 percent for the last decade. It's at about 30 percent for the younger population. So there is this economic angst that is building up. I have seen theories that this was inevitable because it's a repressive theocracy, and eventually people say enough. If you look at the Shah in the 1970s, he had been on the throne for, what, 25 years. This regime is coming up on, what, its 40th anniversary next year, so perhaps just you know, the nature of time is running out. One theory I saw that this is caused by chicken and eggs, that there is a bird flu in Iran and that it caused a lack of poultry and eggs available, and that caused people to say enough. But you've been studying this situation. What do you think triggered this? The trigger uh, is certainly caused by eggs, eggs, and the increasing price of eggs, and uh, a collapse of one bank, uh, collapse of one financial institution. People lost their savings, and the price of eggs increased. And also, um, because of factionalism within the regime, in the city of Mashhad, uh, the bastion of conservative. Uh, reactionary clerics, uh, they decided to maybe start uh, an economically motivated demonstration against a Rouhani government, who is a reformist and they don't like. Mm -hmm. And they essentially sanctioned a, what they thought would be a limited economic uh, demonstration against the rising price of eggs, uh, the collapse of the bank, and uh, there were other things in the work. The government was about to end subsidies on gasoline and several other subsidies. It was about to end cash subsidies to some people. They thought they could use this to weaken Rouhani, who they don't like. Soon it got out of hand mm -hmm. and it spread to 70 cities across Iran. Right. Were there to be a protest in Palo Alto and San Francisco across the Bay and Berkeley? Pretty simple how you'd organize it. People can talk to each other on Twitter. They can talk to each other on Facebook. They can call each other on their cell phones. How do you organize a protest and uprising in Iran? Well, Iran is uh, surprisingly well connected in terms of uh, Twitter, in terms of Facebook, in terms of Instagram, in terms mm -hmm. of Telegram. There are more than 50 million smartphones in Iran. Iran is one of the most, at the same time, controlled, right. but also connected uh, uh, internet uh, societies in the world. The regime uh, has a love-hate relationship. It can, it wants to use the internet right. to monitor people. It wants to use the internet to propagate its ideology, but the people also use it to undermine the regime. There's a cat and mouse game that has been going on. It's a remarkable game that has been going on. They use that to spread the news. And when you have a fertile ground, when you have as much disgruntlement, unemployment, inflation, uh, anger at corruption, anger at cronyism, anger at, de at despotism, anger at clerical hypocrisy. It, it's like uh, the, the landscape of parts of California are ready for a wildfire. The minute some, someone uh, starts a bad fire in their backyard. And one of the government's reactions was to clamp down on the internet, correct? The government has virtually declared a martial law, a mm -hmm. digital martial law in Iran. They have clamped down. They occasionally shut it down completely. Uh, but they are of two opinions. Some in the government don't think that that's going to do the problem, that's right. going to solve the problem. Uh, but they also need the Internet for finances. They, they need the Internet for their own connection. So it, they are caught in a very difficult position. They were extremely, I think, caught off guard mm -hmm. by how quickly this is spread. 
and how quickly and rapidly economic demands morphed into radical political slogans. Uh, I've never seen in all the 39 years of the Islamic Republic as many deaths to the dictator, deaths to Khamenei shouts as in the last uh, 10 days. There were sporadic shouts like this in the students' movement in 2009, in the Green Movement, but here at every city, uh, and many of these cities are small towns known historically for their piety. Right. Uh, you know, if you co go out in the street in Palo Alto and demonstrate against uh, Bill Gates, for example, the likelihood of anybody recognizing you and I walking down the street right. is almost nil. But in a small town, everybody knows everybody. And the, the, the Ministry of Intelligence, the police, they know everybody. So anybody who comes out is taking far more of a risk than if they came out in Tehran, for example. You mentioned Mashhad, which is the second largest city in Iran, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think I read that the smaller the city where an uprising occurred, the more violent the uprising tended to be. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, and uh, in some places, uh, the symbols that they decided to attack mm -hmm. are remarkable. In the city called Khomeini, Khomeini Shah, the founder of the republic, they actually attacked and burned the seminary of the city of Khomeini. Mm -hmm. You can't be more symbolically potent and poignant uh, and daring. Uh, and everybody is taking videos of the scene and putting it on uh, YouTube and on Instagram, on Telegram. Uh, the regime, for example, to give you a sense of how quickly people organize, uh, the regime complained to Telegram that one site called Ahmad News has uh, put on a, uh, on a video on their site that recommends terrorist acts. So the government demanded the Telegram take down this uh, site. Telegram accepted, they took it down. This site had one million users. Within an hour, more than a million and a half you, uh, joined a new uh, site called uh, Ahmad News One. Mm -hmm. Ahmad News One created the new site, said this is a new site, joined. And a million and a half people joined within literally uh, an hour. That's how organized they are, and, and that's how uh, people try to get the message across. You mentioned earlier that the government was caught off guard by this, um, which surprises me given that this is a very controlled state, which I assume would have a very strong intelligence force. Uh, politically, uh, the leaders are not without antennae. If you looked at the last budget that was proposed for the nation, it's about a $330 billion spending plan, I believe, which includes about $100 billion in earmarks earmarks being little things here and there as in the U.S. to try to improve people's lives, which tells you what, that they're sensitive to the fact that people are, are angry and they're ornery, if you will. But yet, why would they Why would they not be cognizant of this much fed-up anger toward the way things are? So, first of all, I think there are some in the regime, mm -hmm. uh, foremost amongst them Mr. Khamenei, who I think uh, does believe that he has more support than he in fact does, and he thinks that with, with that support, Explain who Mr. Khamenei is. Uh, the, uh, Mr. Khamenei is called the supreme leader. Right. The, the Iranian constitution is a kind of incongruent mix. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, you have a disproportionate share of power in the hands of an unelected, unimpeachable officer called the supreme leader. Right. 
He claims his legitimacy comes from Allah. Allah has picked him, and Allah can unpick him. Mm -hmm. uh, people have no choice in all of this. Uh, Reuters just published a study that says he controls something like $90 billion in assets. I think this is even more than Putin, mm -hmm. uh, and what he controls in his uh, private accounts. Uh, but then there's also an elected president who's elected directly by the people. Hassan Rouhani. Uh, it's Hassan Rouhani, but the clergy have also infringed on that right of the people because they now have usurped literally the right to right. determine who can run. So you have Rouhani elected in a mitigated manner by mm -hmm. popular vote, and you have uh, Mr. Khamenei with a disproportionate share of power. Uh, he's a commander-in-chief. He appoints the head of the judiciary. He controls the courts. He controls the radio and television, which has a monopoly in Iran. So he has a lot of power. The supreme leader turns 79 in July. Uh, the president turns 70 this fall. Is this a function of generational problems in Iran, or is it just the institution of the office itself? I think uh, it's both generational mm -hmm. uh, and it's ideological. Uh, and it, it's human. I mean, I think the capacity to transcend absolute power and not become corrupted by absolute power requires uh, saintly uh, character. And Mr. Khamenei is nothing if uh, not a uh, despot. Mm -hmm. uh, the other one is that exactly the generational. Uh, Iranian society is now 65, 70% under the age of 35. Right. They're internet savvy they are global, they connected to the international cultural scene, the music scene, the fashion scene, almost on every account. They are what you would expect a 21st century young woman and man to be. The regime doesn't uh, fit this image. It's a very incongruent combination of a septuagenarian, sometimes nonagenarian <laughs> leadership. Right. Uh, with a society that is global, savvy, full of joy, uh, wants to enjoy life. Uh, to give you a sense of how incongruent the reality is, 60-odd percent of college graduates last couple of years in Iran have been women. Mm -hmm. But women can't go to a soccer game in Iran because the clergy have determined that if women go to a soccer game and see the naked legs of men, they might get unduly excited. It is forbidden for women to go to a soccer game. I mean, the absurdity of this. Can they drive cars? They can drive cars. They've always been able to drive cars. Uh, they're much ahead of, uh, they were much ahead in almost every category from Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia just allowed women in their stadium. Yes. And uh, Iranian women are very uh, much aware of this uh, step forward there. Right, so this uprising comes about eight years after the Green Movement. 2009, 2010, what is the big difference between then and now? I think two big differences. One was that the 2009 had a very clear uh, initial focus. That was the election? That was the election. Mm -hmm. People have said, what happened to my, my vote? People believed, as I believe, that the uh, election was rigged, that Ahmadinejad was not uh, legitimately elected. Uh, so it was a very focused uh, movement for a very focused demand. It had a clear leadership, Mr. Musavi, who's now in prison for almost seven years illegally under house arrest, as is his wife, as is the other candidate, Karubi, who objected to the results. And it's remarkable, again, 
For seven years, they've been under house arrest, no indictment against them, uh, and no chance for them to get out, apparently. And it was concentrated in Tehran and a couple of other cities. It was essentially an urban, middle-class, intelligentsia movement. This one is spread throughout the country. Mm. It's spread through smaller cities. It is primarily a working-class uh, movement. Uh, it is youth-based, but it's the youth of the neighborhoods traditionally known for piety, uh, traditionally known as working-class neighborhoods. And that's what caught them off guard. Right. I see a problem, though. Uh, if you want to go back to the 79 revolution, does the parallel, you have a very charismatic figure leading that revolution in the Ayatollah Khomeini. Who is the leader of this movement? Who speaks for the uprisings? Who can they turn to as their inspiration, the person they would want to hear from? Uh, I think this was essentially a spontaneous movement. Mm -hmm. And as a spontaneous movement, they have the power of spontaneity, but they have the weakness of no leadership. If there is a leadership, I think it's in network rather than in a hierarchy. It is in the network of uh, the social media. Right. Uh, that makes it uh, difficult to organize. That makes it difficult to negotiate. That makes it difficult to focus your uh, fire, essentially. Uh, but it also makes it less uh, easy for the regime to suppress. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be able to easily suppress it. What they have done now is they have gone on a massive arrest right. spree. Um, by some accounts, the government's own account, uh, me members of the parliament have said there are at least 4,000 people arrested, five killed in prison. The regime claims uh, the number is about 1,000 arrested. The opposition actually says the number is more than 4,000. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the regime claims the five who have been killed uh, have all committed suicide. So five people in the last eight, five days in prison have decided to commit suicide. No one other than themselves believes this. Everyone right. believes that they were killed. And the death toll I've seen is, what, 23 or something like that? Minimally 23. Minimally 23. 23. Do you believe that, or do you think no. the number is higher? I, I think the number is probably higher. Uh, I think the number of the arrested is higher. Uh, and uh, what I think, uh, if anything, uh, accounts for the, fortunately, relatively lower number of death, mm -hmm. is that because it was in the wor uh, working class neighborhoods, because it was in the small towns, and because it was so surprising to them, uh, they were very cautious in how they approach it so that they don't start a fire they can no longer contain. How many who immediately talked about the demonstrations almost in 2009, took a few days to say something, initially said very little, and when he said it uh, two days ago when he gave a longer talk, essentially accusing the United States, Israel, and Saudi Arabia as the main culprits, uh, but was still cautious. Mm -hmm. uh, the kind of rhetorical uh, bravura that he had in 2009, attacking everybody, this time I think they knew. Making the calculation that if they came down too hard, it would just make the situation worse. Absolutely, because they didn't know what they were facing, actually. Okay, th the big question now. Um, will we, eight years from now, be talking about the next uprising in Iran, or is this the beginning of the end for the way things are in Iran? I think the way things were in Iran have ended. Uh, I, I think the uprising has convinced uh, the people 
first of all, that the regime is much more vulnerable than mm -hmm. it is. It has shown the uh, major rifts within the regime. It has uh, weakened considerably the reformists, mm -hmm. because the reformists were reluctant initially to come out in support, initially attacked the uh, demonstrators. Uh, Mr. Khatemi, I think, lost a lot of credibility because he was both late in supporting, in fact, he never supported. He basically said there are legitimate demands, but this is not a way to approach them. And people have gotten every evidence I have seen very angry with him. So it is a new game. But this is not a regime that has yet exhausted its abilities for suppression right. and abilities to survive. All right. So I assume the protesters, the uprisers, want more than eggs. They want more than eggs. And I assume the government doesn't want to give them much more than eggs. So to explain to me a little bit about what you think the demands will be from the uprisers and what you think the government is willing to give in return. Because it seems to me the regime has to make a calculation. How much can I give without toppling it? Uh, I, I think you're pointing to probably the most sensitive issue for the regime because I think their ability to give is seriously diminished. Uh, they might like to bribe the population. Uh, they might like to spend $40 billion, as the Saudi royal family did in the mm -hmm. aftermath of the Arab Spring, in order to make sure nothing like that happens. Uh, but the Iranian regime just doesn't have that money. Uh, that budget uh, is limited. Oil right. is limited. Uh, the earmarks, have you, as you call them, mm -hmm. uh, are absolutely much more than the government can afford. Subsidies can no longer afford. Uh, there is a drought. Uh, if there was uh, one disease hiking the price of uh, eggs, uh, this is probably one of the driest years. So virtually the price of everything is about to increase. The price of dollar has already increased by 10%, which means the price of everything will increase 10%. Mm -hmm. And how they're going to solve all of these things, unless they're willing to make serious cuts in their own entitlements, I can't figure. But they can't cut their own entitlements because those who are getting these money for monies from these entitlements are essentially their own social base, right. their only social base. So they're caught in a very, I think, interesting, complicated dilemma. That's why I would be very surprised if they don't face more serious challenges in the coming month. Meanwhile, many thousands of miles away, a government in Washington, D.C. tries to figure what to do in this situation how to make sense of the uprising, and how it should react in kind. Nikki Haley calls a meeting, the U.S. Ambassador of the United Nations calls a meeting of the Security Council. The Trump administration is much more vocal in its support of the protesters than was the Obama administration during the Green Movement. Some people say we should have provided satellite <laughs> internet capability for the uprisers and so forth. But the Trump administration does face some choices here. And as we're doing this on Thursday the 11th, as we speak, literally, there is a meeting in the White House where the president and the secretary of state are sitting down and they're having a conversation about sanctions, which come due on Friday. There's a story out today, obviously, which says the Justice Department will establish a financing and narco-terrorism team to target Hezbollah, which is a way of taking a shot at Iran. What do you expect Donald Trump and the Trump administration to do on sanctions? My sense is that they're going to uh, continue um, staying within the nuclear deal, mm -hmm. which I think is the right policy. I, right. I don't believe that unilaterally withdrawing from the uh, nuclear deal uh, is a very good option. Uh, and I think they are going to increase unilateral UN, U.S. sanctions, mm -hmm. both on 
groups like Hezbollah. Uh, there are even talks of uh, putting sanctions on uh, Iranian radio and television mm -hmm. for propagating false ideas. There was a very interesting event that happened in the last couple of days that I think should raise some alarm within the Iranian regime. Uh, one of the top clerics secretly traveled to Germany to have a, a brain tumor removed. People found out about it. This is a gentleman who was uh, being groomed as a possible successor to Khomeini. His name is Shah Rudi. Uh, and uh, the opposition found out where he is. They immediately filed uh, claims about crimes against humanity against them, and they quickly whisked him out of Germany. I think he left this morning. I think the regime now is on notice mm -hmm. that people like this who have been in, uh, complicit in acts, brutal acts against people who have ordered the death of prisoners, who have shot at people, mm -hmm. uh, are going to be uh, persecuted uh, in, uh, and prosecuted, hopefully prosecuted and persecuted right. uh, in the international courts. Uh, so um, my, my expectation is that the United States is going to increase these pressures. Mm -hmm. And I think with the United States taking the lead on these, Europe is going to also be right. forced to act a little more uh, uh, concerned about human rights. I think the record that most European countries have had is unfortunate in the sense that they have uh, uh, preferred mercantilist uh, uh, dealings with Iran over jeopardizing those dealings with right. serious discussion of human rights abuses. Right. So as we look at sanctions and what the United States can do, uh, the president can extend waivers on sanctions uh, that were suspended under the deal. He can do sanctions related to uh, ballistic missiles, human rights, cyber violations, for example. But then there are sanctions that have to do with financial aspects of the Iranian existence, for example, whether to continue relief from sanctions that cut off Iran's central bank from the global financial system. What do you think is the sensible policy? Sanctions in the financial system worked. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think brought the regime to negotiating table on the nuclear deal mm -hmm. uh, because there were uh, international sanctions, the global community, the UN joint. I think unilateral UN sa U.S. sanctions, uh, even on the financial system, uh, is going to hurt, but it's not going to be as effective. Uh, and I think the calculation that the Trump administration needs to make is whether they want to uh, help the forces that are trying to gradually move Iran. Uh, and in that case, uh, crippling sanctions will hurt the reformists, mm -hmm. and will hurt this gradual incremental process of change, or whether they think that by going full force, they can bring the regime to its knees. Uh, my sense is that the first option is the one that is more likely to succeed because so many other actors in the international community, Europe, China, Russia, uh, India, uh, to a lesser extent maybe Turkey, all prefer that gradual incremental process of change. Right. With the exception of Russia that likes Mr. Khamenei and I, I think banks on him surviving. Right. Now we've been going through two waves of, of 2020 hindsight in this country with regard to Iran. Um, after the election, it was the nuclear deal. 
and whether or not the Obama administration did the right thing or not in terms of the different agreements and, and money and so forth. But now the other 2020 hindsight is the Obama administration's handling of the Green Movement back in 2009 and 2010. First of all, the nuclear deal. Do you, do you support the nuclear deal? Do you think it's right? What would you change, if anything? I did support the nuclear deal. I mm -hmm. still support it. I, I still think it was the least bad option available at the time. The least bad option available at the time. It's a, not exactly a ringing endorsement. No, no it, it wasn't uh, because uh, uh, I think both sides, right. both the Obama administration and the Rouhani administration, are paying the price for overselling it. Okay. Uh, it, it wasn't, uh, it didn't block all the way, all the path of Iran to a nuclear program. Mm -hmm. And contrary to Mr. Rohani's claim, it was never supposed to end all option, all okay. sanctions. So, so you're so you're saying it could have been better and it could have been worse. It could have been. The, the, to me, the better deal would have been uh, to include a discussion of human rights and on regional politics and on ballistic issues. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, Mr. Obama was sold on the idea that if you raise those issues, Khamenei is going to walk. Right. You're not going to have a deal. Uh, I'm not sure that was the right calculation. Mm -hmm. So it, to me, it was the least bad deal. It should have absolutely included human rights. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike McFall and Larry Diamond and I have repeatedly said they should have done what Reagan did with the Soviet Union. Talk nuclear in the morning, talk human rights in the afternoon. So, mm -hmm. But they just talked. And then the Obama administration's handling of the Green Movement, which Obama alumni are very sensitive about. They've pushed back very hard in the New York Times and other places writing about we, we stand by what we did. Did they do the right thing, though? I, I don't think so. No. I, I think they were uh, late and uh, hesitant in their support. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I understand their calculation. Their calculation was that uh, if we go full force on this, uh, the nuclear deal is going to collapse. Right. Um, but I don't think that was the right calculation uh, because I think the regime eventually came to the nuclear deal, not because of the U.S. supporting or the U.S. not supporting. The other argument that we should be cautious because the regime is going to accuse them of being uh, American lackeys mm -hmm. also doesn't hold because the regime is going to accuse them anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, the regime it was as uh, angry about the U.S. supposed in, uh, involvement. Right. Uh, the, U the Iranian regime literally claimed Although the Obama administration was hesitant and late, the Iranian regime literally claimed that Larry Diamond, Mike McFall, and I were actually the masterminds of the Green Movement. We had nothing to do with it. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, so the, the notion that you're going to stop them from right. developing their conspiracy theories uh, fails to understand how paranoid they are and how much they need that conspiracy domestically. Uh, this is the regime that famously coined death to America, the great Satan, and so forth. But yet you also told me that two-thirds of this country is young. Uh, how does that young population view the United States? By every account that we have, from polls to anecdotal accounts, everyone who has ever traveled from Stanford, from everywhere, journalists, mm -hmm. uh, American friends, they come back and say Iranians absolutely dis disproportionately love America. Uh, are very much in favor of normalized relations with the United States. Uh, this is where they most want to come if they leave Iran. This is the most coveted place for uh, immigration. This is where they send their children 
even the clergy to get educated. The number of the top clergy who have some children here in the U.S. or in Canada is remarkable. So uh, I think that's part of the problem. And the, pro the point that has been made repeatedly in Iran in the last few years is who has said, other than Khamenei, that death to America and uh, animosity to America is a pillar of policy? Why not? Why not? normalized relations. Uh, even Rafsanjani, who was a pillar of this regime, in his dying days and his dying month, in fact, said, we should normalize relations with the United States. We can't solve our problems. And they really cannot. These economic challenges we talked about cannot be solved unless Iran has normalized relations with the United States both because of the significance of the United States and the international community, but also because Iran has a very powerful, very successful, very rich diaspora in America. This diaspora is not going to help the economic problems of Iran unless relations with the U.S. are normalized. So tell me what the U.S. should do in this situation, because you have, on the one hand, a government-to-government -government relationship where the government of Washington is telling the government of Tehran you're not our friend. But at the same time, we want the American people to tell the Iranian people that we stand by you. We believe in, in that you want freedom as well. We want to be your friend. So how does the government, how does the United States government affect do these two things at the same time, be as restrictive and hard as it can on the regime, but at the same time try to convince the population that we are not part of the problem, we're part of the solution? The solution. Well, you know, the United States has in the past done this successfully. Some people tell me the United States can't do this. It's too complicated. It's too nuanced. No, the United States has done this in the past. They did this in the Cold War mm. but successfully. Uh, I think, for example, the ban on Iranians coming to the United States that is part of the Muslim ban is a very bad idea. I, I think uh, if Mr. Trump wanted to show support, he would have lifted that ban, for example. Uh, I, I think uh, the idea of not criticizing, for example, what Saudi Arabia is doing in Yemen is bad policy. The Iranian regime is using that. I also don't think those who say, the critics of Mr. Trump, who say, because Trump has done these things, because Trump has called the Persian Gulf, the Arabian Gulf, he now has no right to support the democratic aspirations of the Iranian people. Mm -hmm. I say the criticism might be valid, but he, as the President of the United States, brings an enormous amount of authority. Uh, and when that authority is said in, with humility that we support the democratic aspirations of the Iranian people, we're not going to try to change it, we're not going to choose your next government, but we understand you want a free democratic Iran, we're watching these brutal uh, rulers, we're going to punish them, mm -hmm. and we're going to try to provide as much help as we can for you to, to determine your democratic future. And internet, uh, breaking the internet's uh, domination of the regime might be a, a way of doing it. There are apparently ways that the uh, United States, uh, Google, uh, some of the Telegram, some of these right. uh, can help. I, I don't understand the technological aspect of it, but I'm told there is. George W. Bush stands before Congress and he declares an excess of evil exists in the world and the access runs through Tehran. 
I think North Korea and Iraq are the other two members right. of the Axis. One of those nations is obviously no longer a member. Iraq is no longer under Saddam Hussein. North Korea still exists, though, in its current state, as does Iran. In 2018 terms, Abbas, is there still an excess of evil in this world in your estimation? If so, is Iran part of the axis? I, I didn't think that there was an axis of evil then. I thought no. it was more a rhetorical turn of phrase. But he was getting to a point, these are nations that cause misery around the globe. These are exporters of terrorism. These are bad actors on the world stage. So that's the question here. Iran, still an exporter of terrorism, still a bad actor on the world stage. Is it worse now than it was then? Uh, I think Iran is an exporter of terror. This does tie into the Hezbollah question. Yeah, I guess, yeah. And, and I just I think Iran supports Hezbollah. Iran supports Shiite radicals, some of right. which are uh, extremely brutal in, some, mm -hmm. in the way they deal with fellow Iraqi Sunnis. They should be controlled. They should be contained. Iran does a lot of mischief in the region. Right. Uh, so I think it is a source of mischief. But my view has always been that when making these kinds of pronouncements, we forget about the other Iran, mm -hmm. and we weaken the other Iran. Uh, my uh, suggestion has always been that while the U.S. must confront those aspects of the Iranian egregious behavior, they must address it, they must confront it, while at the same time cognizant of the fact that there is this other movement, there is this uh, uh, other Iran. Right that is trying, that is, first of all, hostage to this regime and is trying to get out of this hostage situation. Is the, is the adventurism beyond its borders coming back to haunt it in terms of the uprisings? Because uh, I believe I've seen examples of where protesters have mentioned Syria, for example, that what are we doing in Syria? I think it is very much coming mm -hmm. back. Uh, one of the slogans was uh, neither Syria nor Lebanon. Right. Think about Iran. And immediately, after these demonstrations, uh, there are now new reports about how much human cost Iran has incurred, how much human cost Afghanis have incurred. Right. Uh, the head of the Afghan forces that has been mobilized by Iran to be sent to fight in Syria just two days ago went on record and said, I'm very dissatisfied. We have had 7,000 people killed, 7,000, 10,000 injured. How many people have they sent? There are at least a thousand Iranians killed. There are several major IRGC commanders killed. How much money has the government spent? Uh, and Hezbollah the same. So I think that is coming back to haunt them very much. Now the regime could create a distraction. And would that distraction be Saudi Arabia? Well, the regime is very much trying to create that distraction. Um, well, Shakespeare said, keep giddy minds busy with foreign wars. Uh, <laughs> and if you can bring a foreign war with that uh, added the tinge of a uh, little bit of racism that has historically existed between Persians and Arabs, two have been not very favorably disposed towards one another, uh, that gives it a much more potency. How close are we to missiles flying across the Persian Gulf? I don't think uh, the, the, that is something either uh, the Saudis want or the Iranians want. Uh, but Iranians have been provocative, uh, I think. Right. I, mean, I think, to be fair to what the Saudis are saying, uh, the missiles that have been shot at uh, Saudi Arabia, and the rhetoric that has come from Iran. Mm -hmm. They put the image of one of these missiles on the front page of Kehan, the paper that speaks for Khamenei, and said, 
this one is Saudi Arabia, the next, um, the next one is United Arab Emirates. These are extremely stupidly provocative things. And, uh, but I don't think Saudi Arabia would want to pick a war with Iran. I don't think Iran would pick a war with Saudi Arabia at this time because the cost for both of them would be absolutely, I mean, if you think Yemen is breaking the bank in Saudi Arabia, just imagine what a, another front, and this time with Iran. Iran is not the Houthis. Iran is, a, you know, they have a, maybe a million people. And, uh, well, it fought up a war of attrition against Iraq. It fought a war of attrition against Iraq for eight years. Right. Uh, and, you know, they have been essentially, incessantly fighting in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Syria. There have been some involvement in the Afghanistan. So there, this is not an untrained uh, uh, military. All right, back to the uprising, the, the great egg revolt of 2017 and 2018. Uh, it ran for about 10 days or so. Mm -hmm. What's the next step? Well, I, I don't think anybody knows. No. I certainly don't. Uh, it has certainly been quiet. Mm -hmm. uh, the only for the last, for example, I was looking at the Twitter and the news just before coming to talk with you to see right. uh, the last 24 hours, the only recorded uh, uh, demonstrations were in front of Ebin prison, uh, where the families of those inside have gathered, which is a fascinating. Mm -hmm. But the regime just attacked it. Uh, they, th they sent their thugs and attacked it. Uh, I think in some ways, how it, it, will, it all will depend on what the government will do. If they really try to only come down with an iron fist, I think it will backfire on them. Uh, I, I think uh, you will have another burst somewhere. It could be as simple as a town running out of gasoline or some <coughs> commodity, and boom, we're off to the races again. Absolutely. But, uh, I, uh, truly, I think the, you know, the, the wildfires in California is a good metaphor. Mm -hmm. uh, when the land is as dry as California, anything can uh, start it. And when the people are as angry as they are in Iran, mm -hmm. double-digit unemployment. The, uh, one economist says there's no other country in the world, a very prominent Iranian economist said this, mm -hmm. he said there's no other country in the world where you have had double-digit unemployment, double-digit inflation concurrently for 37 years, and nothing, the government hasn't fallen. That's the reality in Iran. Hitherto, with monies from the, you know, bonanza from oil at $140 when it went up, right. uh, they could bribe the population, keep it quiet. They could put the earmarks. Uh, they could give uh, cash subsidies. Now they have to end not just cash subsidies, but the subsidy in gasoline. That's going to hurt everybody. They back down. They gave up the idea of uh, ending the gasoline subsidy, but they're not going to be able to continue subsidizing gasoline. Let me build on the California example and let's see if it applies to Iran as well, Abbas, in this regard. It's not just one calamity that hits California, it's a series of calamities. For example, right now, the, the most horrific story in the state would be the terrible mudslides in Montecito, which is outside of Santa Barbara. That was caused in great part by the wildfires which preceded it. The earth gets scorched, the dirt gets loose, it rains, the rain turns to mud, and there you are. In the great fires in Sonoma, that was preceded by a great amount of rain the previous season, which caused an incredible amount of vegetation, which then 
turns into fires when it gets hit by sparks. In other words, it's a series of calamities that hit a state. So you look at Iran, is it just one calamity such as running out of eggs, or are we looking at perhaps a series of triggers? It's not just it's not just commodities, it's economic conditions, it's tired of being in foreign wars, it's tired of repression and so forth. In other words, it's just it's almost like say a bowling ball going down a flight of stairs where it's just thud, 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 thud. Exactly. I think that's exactly it. Uh, again, to give you a, an example, one of the arguments that I think is very valid uh, in terms of what triggered this recent uh, set of demonstrations, aside from the egg and aside from the collapsing bank, um, the Rouhani government decided for the first time to be very transparent about the budget. And they put out the figures. And one of the figures that made the first headlines, the most read newspaper in the country, was how much money was being given to these religious research centers, quote-unquote. These are centers run by clerics who are subservient to Mr. Khomeini. These are hundreds of millions of dollars. And people began saying, why are you paying this money to these guys? What have they done for the country? What have they done intellectually? They haven't produced nothing. These, these are bribes. These are forms of hiring you know, ideologues for the regime. When somebody reads that, and as I saw in one of the reports on television, it says, I read this, and I realized I can't feed my family at night. And this cleric is getting $100 million to do what? These are the tr kinds of triggers that uh, I think are likely to only increase because I don't see it in the government to have the wisdom to change enough so that the ball doesn't go. And that's a very interesting metaphor. Final question, Abbas, and that's one of media coverage of what is happening in Iran. The New York Times has been criticized by some people for its coverage, its Tehran Bureau in particular, which first started writing about the uprising. And if it wasn't disinterested, the writing was really blasé, just sort of dismissed it out of hand. It read smacked of lazy journalism. In other words, a journalist who just sort of bought into what he was being told by the Ministry of Information. Uh, if you're an American, you're concerned about Iran, you don't speak Farsi. Where do you go to get the best information on this? Where do you, when you get up in the morning, where do you search for information? Well, uh, I am uh, an American Iranian who yes. reads Persian, so yes. I go to uh, sites that I know have news. Right. But I, I, I think the criticism of New York Times is valid. Yeah. Uh, I, I've found their uh, uh, coverage uh, a little too late, right. a little too sympathetic. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Wall Street Journal, for example, uh, has very good reporters writing on Iran. Mm -hmm. They have been thrown out of Iran because they didn't pull their punches. Uh, but uh, Fasihi uh, writes about Iran uh, regularly in the, uh, in the journal. The coverage is Reuters, uh, mm -hmm. has journalists who are doing really remarkable work. Uh, and I think the dilemma for the New York Times is, do you want to keep someone in a place where they know if they write a certain kind of coverage, they're gone. Th they're yeah. gone. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the, the current journalist uh, at the New York Times uh, is married to an Iranian woman, a very prominent uh, photographer. And, uh, I mean, I can understand the human aspect of that, but that doesn't give you the kind of uh, cutting-edge journalism that uh, you need. Uh, and I, I, I was very 
dismayed, surprised, saddened by how late the American media picked on how serious this was. And then when they pick on it, uh, they pick on it as in a very uh, superficial way. Uh, and uh, hopefully more podcasts like yours, uh, I really mean that, that more serious, long discussions. Mm -hmm. You can't go on a program and say for three minutes the kinds of discussions that you and I have had. Right. And what about your writing? What Are you working on any columns right now? Or are you taking a book project? Or what? how do you plan to approach this? Well, uh, I, I have written uh, a couple of uh, uh, op-ed pieces, one on the, the NPR side, one mm -hmm. on the New York uh, Daily, uh, News Daily. Uh, uh, I, I'm pr planning to write a longer piece uh, to try to give the context, the kind of context that we have talked about. Uh, put it in a kind of a historic context that then can give you uh, the trend lines for future. And I think understanding the trend lines rather than understanding the mere tactical fires right. can lead to good policy. Good. I look forward to seeing it when it comes out. Thank you. Alice Malani, thank you for coming into studio today. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Abbas Milani and his Hoover colleagues to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Dr. Abbas Milani is on Twitter, and his Twitter handle is at Milani Abbas. That's his name spelled backwards, and you spell it M-I-L-A-N-I-A-B-B-A-S. Did I get that right? Absolutely. You'll find an entire page on the Stanford website dedicated to Dr. Abbas's research and writing. I've linked to that on my Twitter account, which is at Hoover Whalen. By all means, go check it out. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. We'll be talking about the Trump tax cut and a heavy dose of salt coming blue states' ways. Until then, take care and thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts in the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.